Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer, who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like a commodity. Give me a speck on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. This guy's singing that old, don't know value. Welcome, everybody, to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we talk about customer perceived value. Value only exists in the mind of your customers. And so your entire custom, your entire company, your entire organization has to live their life focusing on something that happens between your customers' ears. I'm your host, Mark Bounty, and I'm thrilled to welcome Jack Arbor, who is uh, a, a relatively new friend. Jack, welcome. Good morning, Mark. How are you? So Jack is, um, I'll start with the mundane stuff first. And Jack is a certified financial planner, uh, but he has done so much more with his life. He's a speaker. He's an author. Uh, one of his books, I got copies for my grandkids. It's uh, This Little Piggy, talking about a philanthropic piggy bank and teaching children from an early age the power of philanthropy. And he's, he's a financial literacy kind of a guy. And he's also started a, uh, a charity or uh, an initi- initiative to help people de- uh, contribute to charities. Jack, tell us all about it. Uh, tell us all about Jack and what, what it is and what you do. Yeah, so I, um, first of all, very proud to be here today, sharing some time with you, Mark. Um, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, I grew up in the wonderful state of Maine, which is where I am today. We have offices uh, both here in Maine as well as Arizona. I've been fortunate in my life to meet some pretty incredible, <clears throat> excuse me, incredible people who have you know, brought me under their wing and have mentored me in you know, the areas of my life in which I wanted to excel. One of those people is Harvey McKay, the author of Some of the Sharks Without Being Eaten Alive, which is what kind of spurred me to start looking into life in Arizona and building an office out there. But my, my business life started back in 2007. I got licensed as a senior at Bowdoin College in the life insurance industry and started to offer uh, life insurance planning, case design, uh, fixed income planning, things of that sort, really fell in love with the industry of financial planning and specifically uh, estate planning, working with people who had you know, been through their careers, put away uh, some bucks and looking at you know, how do we make the most of those monies for the rest of our life and how do we pass that wealth to the next generation in the most efficient manner as possible. Uh, went back to school after graduating from Bowdoin and went to the American College of Financial Services and got the, as you mentioned, the, the more mundane things, a certified financial planner certification and the chartered financial consultant designation, and then started to build a team. And today we are a small team of eight. We function as what is known as a multifamily office. We serve mostly high net worth individuals. And that is everything from investments, insurance, legal tax, bill pay, uh, and getting into lifestyle things like where they travel, concierge services, private aviation, uh, chart chartering, uh, yacht management, things of that nature. And then uh, more recently with some of those families getting into private investigation services, executive protection, et cetera, as these families travel around the world and and live the lives that they do. Um, We also look as a team to ask the, you know, answer the question, how, how is it that we're making a true impact here in this world beyond, you know, helping families build and protect wealth And about maybe two years ago, two and a half years ago, we decided as a team that we were going to start this initiative called 1% to Feed Kids. 
And this really stemmed from a talk that I gave at an elementary school here in Maine about five years ago, where I learned just how prevalent hunger is. And uh, to make a long story very short, how many kids leave school on Friday and go home and do not really have either much to eat or anything to eat at all over the course of a weekend. So we found out that there were a number of programs across America in you know most zip codes where there was a bag program where on Friday kids would go home with a bag of six meals, three for Saturday, three for Sunday, and we have started to fund those. But we've also learned that hunger um, extends beyond just hunger in the belly. It's hunger for opportunities, career opportunities, educational opportunities, and um, you know I would say like financial IQ of a person and this hunger. Um, and the sense of lack that some people have in their lives is really a systemic issue. So the question has become, how do we create an impact where we, yes, fill these bellies of these kids over the course of a weekend, but again, how do we also align them with opportunities when it comes to educational and career opportunities? And the real goal in that, Mark, is really to say that we can teach kids that they are architects and that life is by design and that the life that they've experienced maybe up to the age of whatever it is, 10, 12, 15, 20, does not necessarily, if they look back on that life, does not necessarily mean that's how life is always going to be and that they can make changes if they want to and that the people that help them make those changes are available and looking to help them you know, build lives and be architects and have those lives be really anything that they wish. Yeah, so you know, everybody in the audience, now you see why I called what he does for money, kind of the mundane part of who Jack is. Um, I don't want to ignore that. And we want to talk about that quite a bit because, you know, we are a business uh, podcast, but um, it's, I, I'm, I admire that you're modeling that expanding your life and your conception of life and your conception of success and your conception of wealth beyond the money. I mean, you live in people's financial portfolios, but uh, you're very cognizant of that and, you're mo and you model that behavior that uh, it is about way more than that. So thank you, congratulations. And that's why I'm so thrilled to have you here. Yeah, thank you. You know, one of, I will add here in this part that, you know, I'm currently 37 years old and I'm fortunate where my average client for the past 15 years is somewhere in the ballpark of 67 or 68 years old. So, I, I see about 1500 families per year. And, you know, after seeing, you know, even 1500, you know, never mind somewhere in the ballpark of 20,000 families, you start to understand how people think. And eventually you start to notice patterns. And one of the things I can, I can say for sure is that when you ask somebody who's been through life, they've had a family, they've made some money, they've had some success. Um, they're looking at the next steps of life. You, and we're looking for like, what does wealth mean to you? And what does it mean to grow your wealth, et cetera? The answers always really come back to these people searching for a feeling. And that feeling is one that is deeply rooted and aligned with happiness. So it's not that people are looking to, you know, plan to buy a Ferrari or to buy a new car or to buy more vacations or buy a vacation home. It's that they're looking for what those things derive, which is again, a feeling. And I always, you know, joke, yeah. I, I, I always joke with people and I say, you know, nobody in the world is like, oh, I really want to save to achieve something because that something, a car, a home, vacations, the ability to give the money away and be philanthropic is going to make me miserable. You know, they do it because it's going to bring them joy. It's going to bring them happiness. So the question really is, is what do we need to do as humans if that's like the biggest appetite we have is to be happy and to have joy? 
let's circumvent this process that we're marketed to as people by corporate America, where you got to have the newest watch, the newest car, the best home, the, you know, the better clothes. Let's forget all that. And like, let's ask ourselves in the quiet, silent moments, like, what is it that brings us joy and brings us happiness? And let's go directly to it. Yeah. You know, and, and for a lot of people, it does lie in giving. And, you know, they say that being philanthropic and giving is actually one of the most uh, selfish acts you can make because you really can't give with the intention, the pure intention of helping people without receiving something equal or greater value in return, which is that that feeling of truly making an impact. And I, I've heard this from tens of thousands. Yeah. All right. So everybody in the audience, I'm going to slip into trainer mode and tell you what you just heard. You heard somebody who sells a financial service that is measured, the success of the financial service is measured in dollar and yield and percentage and numerically. But Jack didn't say a doggone word about that. Jack got into the outcomes that that wealth, that that money, that that achievement gets. Customers don't buy a bigger portfolio. They buy a life, they buy happiness. And Jack, uh, in listening to his clients, listen to his focus. And if you want, go back and listen to it or try to think back of how many times Jack mentioned dollars, yield, beta, alpha, portfolio, allocation, or any of those things that are the means to get you there. Jack was focused on that customer outcome. So when I talk about a successful business being customer focused, you know, that you just heard that because Jack does not focus on the numbers. Jack gets the numbers, but uh, the reason he gets it and the reason he's successful with these clients and, and, you know, the blessing is that Jack hangs out with people who figured it out. And all he had to do was stop talking and listen and understand what these very wise, uh, sometimes very well-known people uh, are thinking about after they've made all their mis- you know, made a lot of their mistakes. Hundred percent. Yeah. You know, it's. Um, I always say it's amazing how the most seemingly difficult things can become ultra simple, ultra easy once you have the right people on your team. And you know, that's one of the things that I think the clients that we work with look for in an advisor. It's like, can you take my life? Can you, can you take what we're not experts at? Maybe the person was a doctor, maybe they were a lawyer, maybe they were an architect, maybe they were, um, you know, a professional chef, a a teacher at the end of the day, they're a human being and they have certain wants. And we always say that they're at point a, they're looking to try to get to point B and they're coming to an advisor who has the experience and they're looking to, you know, accelerate that growth curve, shorten the learning curve, and have that person on their team and also build a team around them of the right other professionals, legal, tax, et cetera, in order to make the process of getting from point A to point B easier. And, you know, that's the same thing that you just said, Mark, in terms of finding the right people in your life who can mentor you. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the end of the day, you know, how I function and, you know, what we do for other people. Um, But you nailed it. I mean, it's about putting the right people on your team. It just makes things a lot easier. Yeah. You know, Jack, I think you're underselling, uh, the, the next step beyond getting the right people on your t- team. Because the right people, if you start focusing on what you do and that internal stuff, uh, it's really easy for people to start acting the way they're instructed and measured and start and lose the focus that 
it is about that customer satisfaction. However, that client sat, um, defines it. Um, so it, it sounds like that's how you and your firm differentiates yourself, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know, I, I asked you to think about how you differentiate yourself. There's, there's way too many financial advisors out there. And <laughs> right. For sure. Uh, if, if, if a thousand of them disappeared, the world wouldn't blink an eye. Uh, the people, you know everybody would, yeah, everybody would still get to invest. So you're, you're in a market where there is more than enough supply. How do you differentiate yourself? Yeah, I think um, first, I think that, you know, the stats show that the financial planning investment advisory industry is one that actually needs a lot more people to come into it. A lot of the advisors today are, you know, people who have been in the industry for 20, 25 years or more. Um, a lot of those being more than that time period and in, in phasing out. So we definitely do need more people uh, in this realm. You know, we see companies moving away from pensions, going to 401ks, where you're literally taking all the investment risk and the choices and the decisions, and you're putting it in the lap of the people or in the hands of the people who actually know the least about how to make those decisions. So having professionals to do that is extremely important. Um, the next thing, you know, I always say that a lot of times in some industries, the, the best way to be different is to just completely fulfill the job description of what that person or that job description would be. So for example, as a financial advisor, yes, your job is to create financial plans. There's a six step process, um, seven, you know, depending on how you look at it, put out by the certified financial planner board uh, in terms of, you know, doing a data intake, learning as much as you can about the client, reviewing all of that data, coming back, you know, clarifying, creating a plan, monitoring that plan, you know, making changes to that plan as necessary. Um, but there are a lot of advisors out there who know that the most difficult thing in the industry is to always have a way to find new clients. So a lot of advisors are spending time trying to find new clients to grow their book and they don't have systems or models in place to actually therefore support who they already have. So one of the biggest things that we say here at JMA in terms of our growth model is first and foremost is to take the, the best care of the clients that we already have. Yes, we do all the marketing. Yes, we're trying to bring on new clients. We do that in a number of ways. But ideally, if we could grow in any way, it'd be by referral only. Referrals are not given, they're earned. So you have to have a client base that knows that you as advisors are client centric and they have to feel that it has to be authentic and it has to be real where it's not, you're just checking in with them, you know, every 60 days or every uh, 180 days, whatever it is, just to review portfolios. It's also just a random call. Hey, how's it going? What's going on with the grandkids? How did the game go? Um, being in tune with their lives. And when the person feels like you are not just their advisor, but they're, that you're a human being who has this unique skill set in the advisory world that they can connect with as a human being, first and foremost, again, with that skill set to back it, that's what really changes everything. So uh, one of the interesting uh, stats I can give you is we run about 50 workshops per year and those workshops bring in new clientele. And last year, because of COVID, we could only run 15 public events. If I look at our numbers this year, where we're focusing more on client acquisition and growth in that way, we have already done 15 or 16 workshops this year. We only did 15 workshops last year. 
And if I look at our numbers, we're only on track this year to do about 70 to 80% of the business that we did last year. So we were talking about that this morning. We're saying, well, what's the difference? And the difference lies in the fact that although rule number one for us is to focus on what we already have, our time and energy has truly gone into more marketing, more workshops, et cetera. So as we approach the second half of the year uh, at the end of June, you know, our, our meeting on Wednesday, our sales meeting is really about how do we go back to what was so successful last year and really ramp up the experience of the clients we already have. So number one, I would say that we are a extremely client-centric, relationship-driven business. Um, and that's something that we truly acknowledge. And we do that by deepening the relationships. The second thing I would say is that, you know, we build teams around people to ensure that all the things that they really need to have in place are in place. And what I mean by that is a financial planner really should serve as the quarterback to a family. They're the ones who should be making sure that the person is protected in terms of all the right insurances, that they have their tax affairs in order, that they have their legal affairs in order, wills, trusts, powers of attorney. The next generation knows roughly the types of accounts that they stand to inherit. Uh, and the financial planner is also working directly with that legal professional. They're working with the tax professional. They're working with the family's property and casualty agent to make sure they have the right types of coverages on their auto, their home, their, their collections, whether it be guns, jewelry, art, coins, stamps, et cetera. Um, when you have the right people around your clients, it's amazing how the client starts to feel super secure. That peace of mind comes into play and they say, wow, I know what I have for investments. I know why I have them. I know what I'm going to do with them. Should the markets do extremely well? I know what I'm going to do. Should the markets do not so well or extremely poor? I know what my plan of action is in that case. I know who my insurance agent is. I know that all my coverages have been reviewed. I know I have the right kind. I know I'm paying the right premiums. I know that if something was to happen, exactly what to expect. I know that we have our wills, our trusts, our powers of attorney in place. I know that if I uh, you know, go into a place of mental incapacity, I know who can make financial decisions for me. I know what the decisions are gonna be made. And I know that if I am mentally incapacitated, I know what type of healthcare I'm going to receive. When a person has all those things and a lot of the things that we do figured out, they, they feel more free to live life on their own terms. And that's really, you know, when I say bringing a person from point A to point B, that's really the point B that most people want. They want to just say, all that stuff's taken care of. I know that if the unforeseen happens, there's really nothing I need to figure out. I've already figured it out. And we have a single point of contact. I'd say that's number three. Yeah. Single, single point of contact, meaning that person can call their advisor and doesn't matter whether it's investments, insurance, legal, tax, et cetera. They know that they can call us and ask. We'll, we'll talk to the other professionals and save them a lot of time. Yeah. So, Jack, as you were talking, uh, a couple of thoughts occurred to me. Um, and maybe there are different ways of looking at the same thought. Um, you, you were talking about this you know, six, maybe seven step process that you learned in you know, CFA school. And it and in you and you labeled one of the thing data intake, which is dry, is is it's it's focusing on the number, is it's focusing on the raw stuff in the middle, and then you started talking about all of the different elements of a truly com comprehensive financial plan that help you do that. And all of that discussion was about 
the mechanics, the, the numerical mechanics, the what you sell. And I, I think there's a, there's a nexus between I help you do it all, but I know I can help you make better decisions about what you want. I just wrote this article, released it over the weekend about the, the absurd mediocrity of that old phrase, people buy from people that they know, like, and trust. And I call bullshit, excuse my language, but I call bullshit. Uh, people want to know you. I mean, they want your phone number and email, but they don't want to know you. Um, the, the reality is they want you to know them. And that is, that is so different that you can't use it in that throwaway, know, like, and trust. People want people they know, like, and trust. That means they know you. And that is not the important thing. That is the opposite of the important thing. And that is that you know them, their lives, their aspirations, their hopes, their fears, their, their aspirations, um, their perceived risks, uh, their situations. You have to know them, which is the opposite of know, like, and trust. Like, right? Uh, we all know people who are kind of cold fish, but who are supremely successful. So liking you, I mean, there's some customers who really want to like you, but all you have to really rise to is they don't dislike you. Yeah, I think one of the, you know, what you're saying right now, I understand. I think that, you know, having somebody know you, like you, and trust you is what then gives you permission to, to know them. You know, it's like, you know, you're, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right, Jack, in that. Uh, and then, then I went to trust and said, hold it. Trust is the thing. Trust is the only thing. It's so important that you shouldn't water it down with these two lazy know and like things. You, sh you should make sure that that trust come and you're right. It comes from you knowing them and from yeah. them believing you know them. Yeah. Uh, so trust is the only thing. And that no like stuff, that is astoundingly mediocre. Um, let, let me I mean, give yeah. I've, yeah. like you said, I've heard this for a long time, right? A lot of people in leadership talk talk about it. You know, Hard McKay talks about it. John Maxwell talks about it. Um, you know, a, a lot of people that are you know the well-known authors and speakers are talking about that. I view the whole no like and trust thing as a single unit, and and I it's like to me it's the baseline. But you know, Harvey and I were talking one day, and he says, Jack, there's really three things that will help me determine whether I do business with a person. And I said, okay, he says, number one, trust. Number two, trust. Number three, trust. He goes, if we don't have trust, we have nothing. And you know, I couldn't agree more because I could not trust a person. I could know them. I could like them on a day-to-day -day basis. They're cool, they're fun, they're funny. I could have a conversation with them, great. But if I don't trust them, it doesn't matter. Yeah, Like literally nothing else matters. So the way that I view it is I want, as a growing business, I want people to obviously know who we are. That's why we market. I want people to like, like us as people, right? When they come in, they enjoy their time here. It's not about just the numbers or the boring stuff. They actually enjoy the engagement. But first and foremost, like I know that they have to trust us or they have to at least be open to trusting us, which is reputation before they actually meet us yep. to get their time. Yeah. But in that yeah. time period with them, our job is to earn their trust yeah. for them to say at the end of that, I'm willing to let this person know about me. 
I'm willing to let this person know about what I've done. I'm willing to, you know, show them my cards. I'm willing to reveal all of my financials, everything I've done, good, bad, ugly decisions, which for some people is embarrassing. You know, some people don't want to say like, Hey, I made this horrible financial decision, or they don't want to say, I don't know what I don't know. They don't want to say, I know nothing about finances. I don't know where to start. That's actually the number one reason why people won't come to a financial advisor. They're not sure what to talk about. They're not sure if they have the means that um, would say, yes, I have enough in order to hire a financial advisor or what to talk about or how much it's going to cost. So, you know, once you get to that point where a, a person says, I trust them, I will reveal who I am and where I'm at. That's a big step for a lot of people, you know, so you're earning the right to get to know them by number one, being trusted, then yes, they, they like who you are. Yeah. And then they say, then they say, Jack, on paper, here's who I am. Here's who we are. Here's where we're at. And here's where we want to go. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's a, it's a really delicate thing, especially in that financial services, you know, that developing trust. Uh, I'm going to say something that I learned long ago, that that reputation or either a reputation, which is conferred credibility, right? What, what I, trust I, I look up as credibility. And so there's referred credibility where I work for a firm that you trust, or you were referred by somebody that I trust. And so there's, there's some credibility, but that is, uh, that's temporary. You've got a couple minutes probably to actually build some of your own personal credibility. That is the only kind of credibility that truly lasts. So it's important to remember and maybe important to remind your team that all of the reputation and stuff they've built is permission to have at least the first five minutes of the conversation. 100%. And, and you, have, you have to plan on what you're going to do during that first five minutes to be approachable, to be vulnerable, but to be expert and to be trustworthy. And that's not an easy thing but it's almost impossible if you didn't think through kind of how you want that first five minutes of the conversation to go through. So, um, and uh, the other hint is what's going to happen when you plan that first five minutes, um, 80% of the time, your plan's going to get thrown out the window and you're going to have to, you're going to have to um, punt or you're going to have to wing it. But if you had that plan, you kind of know where you want it to go in spite of the fact that the topics you you chose to talk about um, aren't appropriate, but you kind of know you've given enough thought to what you want to achieve during that first couple of minutes that you can still get there uh, by being purposeful. Yeah, I think one of the other things, Mark, tying in what you're saying right now with uh, your earlier question of what makes us different is we started working with a company founded by Lee Benson in the Phoenix Scottsdale area called Execute to Win about two years ago. And one of the things that we have done, uh, number one, is we have repositioned our business in a way where it's capable of scaling. And in terms of scaling, you need to, you need to have a system and a process for everything that you do. So we started creating these things called playbooks. A playbook is a bullet point of process of exactly what you do in every situation, meeting with clients, meeting the prospects being one of them. You know, so we, you know, again, after seeing 1500 families per year for the past 15 years, you see a lot of families that you figure out what works and what doesn't in terms of how to meet somebody, whether they are from a workshop, whether they are a walk off the street, whether they're a call in, whether they are a referral, there is a certain way to have that first five minute conversation with that person. Um, because for somebody who's walking in off the street, it's very different than, you know, the brother of a client you've had for 10 years who has heard about you for 10 year period. 
So, you know, whatever that system or process is, you know, we would have in that example, we have four different processes, whether the person's a workshop attendee, whether they're walk off the street, whether they're referral or, or something else, you know, whatever that fourth one is, we would have a process specifically for that. But again, you want to get to a point where, you know, probability wise, where if we have a certain type of person walking through the door, that if we follow this process, it's going to lead to, you know, to success, whatever success means. Yeah. And the other thing is, you know, the other thing I would say, just to kind of wrap that up is, you know, just being your authentic self and, and taking the really simple things like what, you know, I learned a long time ago in Dale Carnegie, one of his top 10 rules is to take an active interest in the lives of other people. You know, so when you're sitting there thinking to yourself, not how do I get this person as a client, not how do I bring them on board, but, you know, literally who is this person sitting in front of me? Where are they and where do they want to go? And first and foremost, can I actually help the person do that? Like, do we have the skill sets, the tools, the services, the capacity to help that person do that? And if you do, it's your job to clarify what your process looks like that you would bring them through in order to make that happen. Yeah. If they're not interested in that process, then nothing else really matters. And there are some times, you know, where a person comes in and for whatever reason, there is literally nothing that we can do. We may be able to get a referral to talk to a couple other people, but bottom line is this, if you can't help the person, just say, look, we are not the best fit for you. You may be better off here. It's not about getting the clients. It's about truly pointing that person in the right direction. And people can feel that, you know, so if your process does align with what their needs are, they'll know that. And if it doesn't just say it. Yeah. One of my mentors, uh, Bob Miller, uh, founder of Miller Hyman, uh, his, his version of that same thing is you don't even know what to sell until you know what your customer wants to buy. And that means what your customer wants to fix, accomplish, and avoid. Mm-hmm. You don't know what to buy until you know what they want to fix, accomplish, or avoid. Um, and so don't present anything until you know that because uh, statistically speaking, you're virtually 100% guaranteed to be wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot of people are, you know, they're trained in a way where it's like, I got to sell a certain product or sell a certain service. And it's, you got to ask the question first, like, does this person want or need that, that product or service? Yeah. You slow down to speed up. Slow down. Slow down to speed up. So uh, we could also talk about the, the ocean of mediocrity in the financial planning business. Uh, Do you have, do you have any big, um, things that grind your gears about people in your industry that are just, you know, anything that grinds your gears probably has its roots in mediocrity. So uh, anything that grinds your gears and we can, uh, your audience, people can say, yeah, that's pretty mediocre. Mediocre Uh, doesn't mean poor quality. It just means average or unimpressive. mm -hmm. And so there's, there's some downright poor there, but what are, what are some of the, the ocean of mediocrity symptoms that you, that grind your gears? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would, I would say that my answer to this question is more so along the lines of what grinds the gears of the public when they're trying to find a financial advisor or financial planner to help them, you know, accomplish whatever it is that they're after. Brilliant uh, first step. Yeah. Right? I, so, so, so I would it's say not what grinds my gears. It's what grinds my clients ears or people's ears. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not emotionally attached to the mediocrity of other advisors. I, I look at it as, uh, you know, from the perspective of a business, I look at it as like, if I know where they are mediocre, I know exactly what we need to do to not be mediocre. 
And this comes to us through verbal feedback from clients that we meet with. They'll, they'll come here and they'll say, oh, Jack, I've been with an advisor for five years or seven years. The reason why I'm sitting here in front of you today is because, and then fill in the blank, it's because current advisor is mediocre in category A, B, C, and D, and they will literally tell you what those are. So as I answer this question, I will, you know, I can tell you, you know, what people actually say. So I would say one of the biggest ones or a couple of them are, uh, number one, there are a lot of insurance agents who hold themselves out as financial advisors. So there are product salespeople who will sell life insurance and they will sell annuities and they will position themselves in their marketing, in their verbal dialogue with, with clients or prospects as I'm here to do financial planning for you. It's not financial planning, it's product sales. There's a very large difference. You know, having a single focus of getting somebody a life insurance policy or a permanent life insurance policy that has a cash value and talking about that in terms of it being an investment, it is literally in the eyes of the state, which insurance is governed by the state. It's not an investment, it's an insurance product. So a lot of people feel uh, as prospects who, who may not know the difference, they feel like they're sitting with a financial advisor who at the end of the day is selling usually one of two things, life insurance or annuities. And it ignores securities, it, it ignores um, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, it ignores alternative investments in private credit, private debt, real estate, private equity, venture cap, private placements. Um, so you really can't do comprehensive financial planning if you only hold one of those licenses. And then what we tend to find out is that when we sit with those people who were under the impression they had a financial advisor, we start to ask questions like, have you done pension planning? No. Have you done social security planning? No. Have you talked to this person who is your quote unquote financial planner about your wills, your trust, your legacy plan, how you're going to actually create and fund that legacy plan? Have you reviewed your other investments, your stocks, your bonds, mutual funds? And the answer across the board is no, 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 no. So it's like, okay, this person is not really advising you on your finances. They came in with one or two products that they wanted to sell before they really knew about you. They already knew that that was the end goal. So that's a biggie because what it does is it ends up leaving a bad taste in people's mouths because then they associate that person with a financial advisor who sells the product that they then never hear from. Usually again, because yeah. you know, these insurance products are a one and done. They're sold. They're not, you know, they're not bought yeah. uh, in my opinion. And then the person has a life insurance policy and five years later, we meet them and they say, yes, I have this, you know, life insurance policy. I don't understand it. I just, I just pay the premium. I know I have this death benefit. They're not sure how the cash value works, how they can get it, how they can take loans, what the loan provision says, what the interest rates will be. And then we usually pick it up from there. So then my point is, is like there becomes this association with a financial planner as, or advisor as somebody who sold them a product and then disappeared. So that, that's a biggie in the industry. And mo most people that we talk to that have life insurance policies or annuities usually do not hear from their advisor after the sale has been made and the contract has been, you know, mailed and signed off on by the client. That that's a big one. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's, that's a, as you know, that's a hell that I've lived. Um, well, Jack, I mean, we're running up on time. What else do you want to, like, before we let you go, what do you want people to know? What's the biggest thing that you want them to know? And how do people get a hold of you? Well, I, I would say 
in, in that question there, Mark, the answer, you know, I would hit on number two. So the number two is, is that in terms of where mediocrity lies, your financial planner needs to be a single point of contact. So I did write, I do write a column for a number of main newspapers here, but I wrote one called 13 questions that, you know, anybody should really ask their financial advisor and they're things like, you know, are you a fiduciary? Meaning, are you legally responsible for the advice that you give me? How are you paid? Are you commissionable? Are you fee-based? Are you fee only? You know, are the, are the goals of the advisor aligned with the goals of the client? You know, do they, do, do they both do well if the client does well, or does the advisor get paid a commission regardless of how well the client does? You know, things along that line. But when I say single point of contact, again, can you pick up the phone and talk to your advisor about everything that you have going on that either touches your money or that your money touches? So that could be, you know, your money touches stocks, bonds, mutual funds. Can you talk to your person about that? Your money touches or is touched by the premiums you pay on life insurance, annuities, long-term care, um, health insurance, your budget, cell phones, um, car payments, you know, you're, you're, you're getting a place to live. Should you rent an apartment? Should you buy? What type of mortgage should you get? You're getting a new vehicle. Should you buy or should you lease? Wills, trust, powers of attorney, tax planning. Does your pro talk to your attorney? Does your financial professional talk to your tax pro? They talk to your property and casualty agent. Can you pick up the phone and call one person who knows all those people on your team or built that team for you to handle it so that you can go back to living life the way that you want? And you know that in the background, they're making those calls, they're gathering the information, they're putting it together, and, and they're calling you back with what the team thinks you should do. Because I can tell you, you know, I, I'm not an attorney, I'm not a tax pro. I've studied tax law, you know, we, we know a lot about tax, but I'm not going to be as good with tax as somebody's top notch tax pro. But if I can be in a room with the attorney, with the tax pro, with the PNC agent, with all the people on that team, the mastermind alliance kicks in. In one plus one no longer equals two. You know, the attorney and I are not going to have 10 answers and 10 answers for that person have 20 answers. We're going to have 30 answers just because of what happens when that brainstorming session happens. So having that single point of contact is going to um, eliminate the mediocrity that a person receives for service, especially if that person has a team around them that that advisor knows and, and works directly with. So that's, a, that's, I would say, a big one. Cool. How do people get a hold of you, Jack? Uh, so email, usually, uh, Jack, J-A-C, at jmrboard.com. Um, you can go to jackrboard.com as well. See some of the, the books that I've written and about the speaking that I do. Uh, also, jmrboard.com is our company website. And then our office. Arbor is A-R-B-O-U-R, for those of you who couldn't translate from the pronunciation to the spelling. Yes. Yes. J M. A-R-B-O-U-R.com. Um, happy to, you know, happy to take calls. We do get a lot of emails uh, and phone calls here at the office. I've done a number of podcasts, Mark, and, and people see those and, you know, they'll hear one little thing that resonates because it's what they experience. Because again, what I'm sharing today is not my opinion. It's, it is the direct feedback of thousands of families who have worked with either an insurance agent or a financial professional, or, you know, just somebody who says in putting together a financial plan, I realize how complicated it is. I realize how much I don't know. I really don't even know where to go. So again, they, they come to us and then we bring in the other parties and make sure that everything gets aligned. But yeah, cool. I mean, our, our, our job, you know, what do I want people to know to answer that question directly is that, you know, financial planning can seem daunting. It can seem extremely complicated, 
But if you do have a advisor who serves as a quarterback and can either work with all the members of your team or build that team for you, again, with the legal, the tax, the insurance professionals, whoever else needs to be on that team and serves as the filter through which all things flow, you start to have a relationship as a client with a person who you know oversees it that's an expert in that field. It, it does bring, again, it brings about the peace of mind. So I, I would say view us in that way. Cool. Um, and remember that only works when they know you, when they, when they genuinely want to know what you want, what your aspirations are, what your life is about. Um, just having, having your financial person have control over everything and oversight over everything and a, a view of everything is not, doesn't get you where you're going. It's having them know you. 100%. Yep. Um, so Jack, thank you so much. Great conversation. We could keep going on, um, <laughs> but let's, but let's not, let's keep this to a reasonable length. We do a round um, two. Absolutely. So, uh, thanks everybody for joining us and thank you, Jack, for joining us on the value clarity podcast, where we remind you that value only exists in your cover in your customer's mind, which means that being truly elite in whatever your business is is a, probably a lot more like brain surgery than you initially thought. Thanks and have a high value day. These pots in a week. Maybe his current supplier screwed things up, put them up a creek. And I don't know why he wants 4,000 of our gold plated thingamabobs with the custom unobtainium mojo option. What do you mean? The custom unobtainium mojo option cost us more than 20 bucks by itself. Are you sure he knows that? Then why'd you tell me 20 bucks? Well, it ain't easy, cause value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're gonna drive over you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues, cause you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.